I reckon we'll. I did hear from Drew. <laughs> I reckon we might go over. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Good <clears throat> you go. Cool. Hello, guys. Welcome to another episode of the Wave Running Podcast. Today, we're here with two huge assets to the Sydney running community. We got Drew Fryer and we got Jimbo Fitzgerald, who is the director of athletics at Sydney Uni. But yeah, I guess let's quickly start off with a bit of a background on who you both are. So we'll start with Drew. Tell us a bit about yourself. So I've been, I guess, in running now for, geez, as long as it's the only spot I've sort of, I've, I've kept, I've kept up for a long time now. Yeah, I've been in, what would you say, what, so that sub elite category, would you say? Yeah, um, definitely. For most of my, uh, now that I've finished high school, I sort of moved into that category and then, um, yeah, I did all my high school, started sort of in primary school, and then I sort of moved into, did, I, I do a little bit of coaching as well. But uh, yeah, I've been, in, I've been in athletics for almost my entire life. And uh, yeah, I'm still loving it. Yeah, and you coach as well. So we'll touch a bit on that as well at the end. Yeah, how about you, Jimbo? Little, little plug for Maccas there, loving it. It's basically, in a nutshell, without going off for too long, I, my background, I was a swimmer, water polo, played a bit of rugby, lots of stuff. And then when I was 21, nearly 22, I took my brother and sister up to Little Athletics and helped out with the shot put and a parent. Like the way that I engaged with the kids, I was actually, I'd gone, I decided to go back to Teachers College. I'd done two years of economics, which I didn't really enjoy that much up at Newcastle, took a year off. I was a franchise manager at Domino's, so I will get another plug in. And, uh, <laughs> and and that was it. That was that was. I had no idea that I'd be now coaching. I'm in my thirty first year of coaching, and you know, starting off at Hornsby Little Athletics, and then had a, a business in my second year. Went and did two level ones in that winter, and just kept progressing. My brother started to get really good, so I went and did my level two, which is now recognised as level four in ninety nine. Then got a scholarship with N Swiss, so I spent twelve months. Um, not necessarily under anyone's tutelage, but I made a real effort to get around Australia and spent some time down in Victoria with a few of the better coaches down there. Went up to Queensland, spent a lot of time in Canberra with Dick Telford. Actually, I think I did four or five uh, sessions with Dick. So obviously learned a lot from, from him and all of them. He's continued to have success for a very long time. And yeah, just kept plugging away and um, worked in the school system for most of my career. So at Westfield Sports for 12 years and then at Abbotsley for 11 years. Had a two-year crossover. I can coach all events in athletics, so I've been the throws coach at Joey's and I've been a multi-coach at a few of the other other private schools like Scooter Redlands and things like that. So, yeah, lots and lots of, of coaching. I did a little bit of teaching for five or six years and uh, I haven't actually taught in a classroom for a long time. But uh, love love being an educator. And then more recently, I had a male-dominant squad in... Uh, from about 2007, 2008, when Nick Bromley came back to me after coaching him as a junior. And then that spawned into <coughs> coaching James Kahn, excuse me. And then in that period of time, uh, Jenny joined me, along with Billy Clark and a whole bunch of the Westfield kids, some of which I'm still coaching now, like Opsa Yusuf. I've been coaching Opsa continuously now for 11 years. So, yeah, so the journey just kept going on. And obviously Jenny and, and, uh, and Millie were, were very successful in Rio. And then Jenny was able to back that up in Tokyo in 2021 and COVID obviously knocked me at my business around and then the opportunity here came up so I obviously applied and got the position and um, have been fortunate enough to you know, just having had my first 
lap around the sun as the director of athletics at Sydney Uni. And uh, um, I've known this, this, this dude since he was 10. We actually met in a cafe in Barry having a milkshake before he did the cross country in the hour when he was a little shiner in primary school. The cohort of athletes here from the sprinters and panel people like obviously Rowan and then and Mackenzie Little and the Javelin, but then all through my EAP program, the success that we've got going at the moment. Last year's EAP that I brought in for this year are fantastic. We've already got um, Alana Pitcher, who has automatically um, been selected for uh, Budapest, along with um, Michelle Jenica and Nicola Ollis Lagas, all from Sydney Uni. And at the moment, in the roll down, we've got 11 Sydney University athletes that potentially will be you know, competing at the World Championships in Budapest. So, my new uh, gig that Drew and I have set up is ESP. So, along with On Track, which has got quite small, I've created a uh, high velocity division with On Track. So, I've got a, a group of five or six sprinters now that, that are working at Homebush, and then we've got a few distance runners that are crossing over with the, the Eastern Suburbs project. We're basically coming off um, working here at Sydney Uni. There are a few athletes that kind of, not so much directionless, but wanted a, a change, wanted, wanted a fresh stimulus in regards to training and training environment and all that sort of stuff. So Drew and I started probably, I don't know, about six months ago, sort of started postulating <laughs> if he got in to do his masters at the uni, which he did. So he's now on EAP. That, um, if that all fell into line, that basically we would give athletes um, the opportunity to do something that's for them, by them. So basically... We'll, we'll probably get on to ESP. We'll do, we'll do that, but just, yeah. just let me know. So it's not me directly always coaching. So it's something that's new, but that's literally from how I started to exactly where I am now. So good salary. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that kind of summarizes the whole podcast perfectly because we're going to touch on everything um, Jimbo no, just cool. talked about. <laughs> yeah. Enjoyed 
as I sort of, I think I said before, I've been coaching now since 2019 and I've enjoyed sort of understanding the different roles that athletes and coaches play within athletics and trying to fill, I guess, both both roles. Yeah, no, I, I mean, what <coughs> uh, what do you feel with coaching younger athletes? Oh, with, um, with, yeah, with, well, obviously that's how I learned. So all of my learnedness of my coaching was developing young kids. So from my first squad, I when I had created my first squad, I actually had three three different squads. I had uh, weaning winners. So they were the kids that were under eight, and I had probably half a dozen of those, and then I had a general squad, and then I had a development squad. So I was able to quite quickly ascertain sort of more what kids enjoy rather than, and so therefore, because I, like what you said, you, re, you when you're getting that feedback and whatever else, you realise that if you've got kids turning up and they're not happy and they're not excited to be there, I've learned that as a teacher as well, that if you're providing lots of variety and you're not overtraining kids, so in those first three or four years of my formative coaching, like the kids basically, yeah, they, they were my, my, my tool, as it were, to understand exactly what, what I can and can't or what I should or shouldn't do. So, and I've been very fortunate that most of the junior athletes that I've coached, nearly 100%, uh, have never had had bone related injuries, so I learned pretty early on what what they can and can't do. So yeah, I think longevity in the sport is so important, and I talk about this a lot. But taking your time when you're younger and developing slowly, so that you can actually stay consistent over multiple years, rather than you know being out for six months or a year because of a bone stress injury, is so important. I think so. I think you guys are both, you know, developing athletes in the right way, and it's yeah. awesome to see that you guys are you know, a few years apart, but you still have like similar mindsets and because you've known each other for such a long time, you have similar outlook of life in general as well, which is pretty cool to see. And going more into your coaching, Jimbo, um, you've done like coaching super young athletes and also quite developed adults as well. Do you still enjoy doing a bit of everything or have you moved on more towards those like sub-elite and elite groups? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I mean, I love coaching, so... As long as the kids are turning up, and I think that's the one thing as well I've learned as a teacher, that um, if if I see that people are, are enjoying what they're doing, then the old positive feedback loop, so the happier and, and that I see athletes, the more I want to come back. So, and at the moment, to answer the question directly, in my squad, in regards to the squad, the youngest person I'm currently coaching is 15. I made a decision at the start of the year that she's the only person that I coach that's in that's in uh, that's still at school. Everyone else is at university or, or working. The fun runners, you know, the, the kids all the way through to the fun runners and stuff like that. Whereas, recreational. Yeah, more of that recreational side of it. Whereas I never set my business up like that. Like it was always about school. And so with the schools, obviously the talented kids wanted to have external coaching. So, uh, and as long as there's still a demand for me to coach at a junior level, I will continue to coach at a junior level. And I just, I, I find the biggest difficulty and Drew and I talk about this heaps, and, and, and everyone talks like everyone talks about it, but no one does anything about it. I just think that there's far too much training being given to, to young athletes. I just it's it's an, it's very frustrating when when I'm hearing rumours that 12 year old kids are uploading 16, 18 k runs on Strava on a Sunday, and I just I think that for me coaching junior athletes, I, I tell parents I said if if your kid's talented. Um, like let's say that they're good enough to compete at state. I said, I'm not going to coach them to win a state medal or to, they might go to nationals, but they're not going to win medals until their body's ready for it. And if they do it, if I coach someone and they're very successful very quickly, 
and they're doing minimal training, fantastic. But I'm not going to be one of these people that's going to just keep loading the body, loading the body until until the kids win, but then they break. And as you said, coming back to the point with the injury, that someone like Obstar, for example, in 11 years, Drew's always wanted to know how he can get away with being able to compete when only doing 35, 40 Ks a week. I said, because he's never got an yet. So his accumulative volume has never been impacted. He's never had to have three months out or six months out. And that's why I say every training session that you don't miss, <laughs> is, is just, it just keeps adding and adding and adding and adding and adding. And I'm seeing more and more now, and you know, like, you know, anecdotally, um, there's a lot more kids in boots and it just, it, it really, it's very disturbing. So sometimes I'm a bit reluctant to get involved with junior, junior athletes, but, um, but for the most part, if they're there and they're keen, then um, yeah, I'll give it a crack. Hey, when you say sometimes that's a bit of a hurdle, junior athletes being told that they're not they're not going to they might not be trained to win a national medal at fourteen. But yeah. then that find it pretty hard to understand that that doesn't really matter. You should be worrying about staying in the sport. Yeah, they, um, they can't see that. So you've got to work. You got to you know you end up having good relationships with their parents. So the parents that understand the process, they're the kids that are in the sport post school. So, and, and there's a lot of them. I mean, you only need to look at the depth that we've got going on at the moment. You know, you look at the junior national championships up in Brisbane and it was just, you know, some of the performances. Okay, there's probably, you know, some of the kids might be training a bit too much, but across all events, you know, all disciplines, the amount of talent that has actually been produced at the moment across Australia is like having been involved for three decades, I've never seen anything like this. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, I haven't even been in Australia for that long. Like it's been five years, but even then, in the five years, I feel like athletics in Australia has grown so much and the upcoming talent is actually insane, like the level that they're competing at. So, yeah, I'm pretty excited to see how far we can take it in the next few generations because it's only going to get better, in my opinion. But yeah, Drew, I know, you know, you're humble. You probably don't want to talk about it too much, but this is your opportunity to talk about it. You got um an award for your coaching. Like you got the Young Sport Coach of the Year Award for Sport New South Wales. So not even in athletics. It was like across all sports where, you know, Athletics and some of you nominated you. Talk a bit about that and what it meant to you to get that award. Yeah, no, it was obviously a, um, I was going to say, yeah, it was like a, yeah, it was a big surprise getting uh, firstly nominated by Athletics New South Wales uh, to represent them at the Sport New South Wales Awards. And, uh, and yeah, you're right. It was for the young coach of the, of the year in 2021. And yeah, I went to the awards night. I really didn't think I'd win or be a finalist or anything. But yeah, I went to the awards night and surprised. Funnily enough, I um, got awarded with the with the title of young coach of the year 2021. And it's not about the coaches. It's not about the like. It was great to receive it, but that was more just about. I'm very lucky, lucky that my first couple of years of coaching the kids that I've been able to work with have had pretty much nothing but trust with what my methodologies are and what how I think they should go about it. And um, ever since I started it, because that was only two years into coaching, like I only started in 2019 and then that was given, like I started probably December 2019 and then that was given like, I think it was something like uh, March 2021. So it wasn't that long after I started coaching and I was lucky that the, the small number of kids that I had at the time, which is pretty much like what Jimbo said before about understanding that it's not really like winning a national title at 13 yeah it's great but um it's not really too important 
Um, but I was lucky that they trusted that um, what I was giving them was was what they should be doing. And when the awards uh, selection came around, I, I suppose the committee saw what saw what I was doing with my with my group, and also I was coaching. I, I still do coach at Cranbrook School, and they saw what I was doing there with, with my brother Kurt. And Cranbrook's been pretty successful lately, uh, picking up the premiership last year, and we're in a pretty good position. So. Yeah, I was very lucky to uh, receive that award. But yeah, as, as Jimbo always talks to me about, and we always agree that yeah, it's not really. It's great to receive an award as a coach, but you're more there for the you're more there for the athlete, and you're there to help them uh, achieve what they want to achieve. And you're just sort of, I guess, the would you say what like the guiding the guiding light? Would you say the facilitator? The facilitator. Um, <laughs> and but no, it was it was very good and. Yeah, it was very great to be recognised for my um, for my work in in coaching. But yeah, that was yeah, it was. But a lot of credit does go to the the boys uh, and the parents, uh, the the trust that they placed in me. But yeah, that's was, hopefully that was only the beginning though. Twenty twenty one. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Aren't you a young coach? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you become an old coach. <laughs> it's awesome that you got it. You know, within two years of starting coaching Friars Run Club because that's still pretty young and obviously you are very experienced I, I, I as an athlete. Very, but, yeah. I, was very, I was very lucky that the boys that I started with when I started coaching were, they had, they, they're pretty talented athletes. So I started with like um, juniors called Nicholas Rogers and George Perkins um, and Callum Frado and they were, the, they were sort of my first three. I think I only had those three when I got given the award. Um, I might've had one more around when the award was given but yeah i was lucky that those first three that i started with were pretty they're still they're pretty talented athletes so obviously that's a that's a head start if you if you're coaching someone with a lot of talent but but yeah i i just i just love that i was able to within only those two years i was able to really create a bond between the kids that i was coaching at the time and and yeah i'm still coaching all of them so yeah it's nothing it's always it's always built on uh just creating the connection and i was i was very fortunate that the, I guess the Sport New South Wales board uh, recognised what I, what I was doing there. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned Nick Rogers, who's recently finished high school and is going to head to the NCAA. But talk a bit about where he was at when he started with you, what he's achieved during your time that he's been with you, and then where he's going next. Uh, yeah, so he was he was the very first uh, he was the very first person that I started with. I started with him. Um, and then the probably I was he was the only one I coached for about three weeks, and then George Perkins joined me after three weeks, and then I was just the three of us for a long time. Um, but yeah, with Nick, when I first started coaching him, his PBs I can still remember his 800 PB was 213, and his that was just off school that was off the school season, so I was coaching him at school, and then in, in that school season I remember he ran 213, and his 1500 PB was like 5.05 and he really didn't want to do the 1500. I remember having to talk him into doing that 1500 for about half an hour and he agreed to do it and then yeah, ran 5.05. And then that was in 2019. And then obviously since then, he's now gone on to, I guess he's beat my, he's beat my PB in the 800. He's, he's now looking at, he's, he's sitting with 151 as his 800 PB and also 347 as his 1500 PB. Um, obviously, he's a very talented junior, and um, yeah, it was I was nothing but fortunate to be able to work with someone as talented as him. 
And, yeah, to see his progression from when I started with him, yeah, it's nothing um, – like I couldn't – there's probably not a – there wouldn't have been a better way that I could have started my coaching uh, coaching career, I guess you say. And the relationship that I've got with him and, and his parents as well, his parents have nothing but trust in what, whatever, I'm, whatever I'm doing with Nick. And, yeah, Nick's, I guess, sort of like a, sort of like a younger brother to me now. I know him pretty well now. And, yeah, as you said, he finished high school last year. Um, and now he's looking to go, he actually goes in August, he's going to George Washington in America. He's going to college in America to see, uh, to I guess, to pursue his um, academic and sport, uh, sporting life over there. Um, and as I'm told, George Washington is supposedly a very smart uni, so he must be pretty smart, apparently. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, I mean, you, you, you met Nick, um, what, Probably this year, I guess I sort of introduced you to. Oh, I've known him for a um, while. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no, he's obviously a very talented athlete, and it was it was pretty pretty lucky, pretty fortunate to get to work with him. Yeah, hundred percent. Moving on to more about you two together, because um, I know that twenty eighteen was when you made your was it your first world school cross country team? Yeah. So oh, I've yeah. Made- I've only made one world. Uh, right. That was um. So that was the world schools. What was it called? World schools. World schools cross country. World schools cross country in in uh, and it was in Paris. Um, yeah. I yeah. That's right. Actually, it was the ISF World Schools Cross Country Championships, and uh, you had to come. I think it was top six at national cross country, and I'm, and I came fourth that that year. And yeah, I was, I was lucky enough to be uh, selected into the individual boys team so with this world schools cross country team there was an individual boys and girls team and then also a school uh boys and girls team so i was on the team as an, a part of the individual boys and, and jimbo uh funnily enough was the school he was coaching at at the time Abbotsley made the school girls team so we sort of reconnected there on that trip um and you were the what, team i guess you were just there with your school um, I was completely independent of the team, yeah. but yeah. So, but yeah, we, I, because yeah, I had a few cracks with Abbotsley, 2013 in Launceston, 2015 at, to, um, to make this schools team. You needed, Ponds, what, eight? you needed eight. Yeah, you did six. The first four count, and then six. And uh, I had a few when I was at Westfields. I had a few girls teams that were pretty good, cool, but they kept coming second at state. Same with my boys teams. And then obviously we'd win state and we'd go to nationals and there was always another school that was slightly better than us. But um, 2017, I had a crack crack up team and uh, yeah, went down to to uh, Hobart and I think you would did you run that year? Went up with the wind yeah, coming yeah. off the lake. Oh, yeah. it was the worst. It was it was like five degrees wind chill. Like it was snowing on Mount Wellington. It was about minus three, minus four wind chill. Anyway. Um, yeah, my girls got the bacon, and even my, my actual uh, best runner or second best runner on the day, she ended up finish, uh, finish, uh, finishing fifth out of my team. She ended up with hypothermia, and we still we still got the got the bacon. So yeah, we got to go up to Paris, and and Abby Rockcliffe, who was part of our team, she actually won the won the team's race, and Sarah McDermott got fourth, and then Hannah Shirizo got thirteenth out of one hundred and sixty nine starters, and she was only in year nine. So then I had Rosie Fordham and then Danny Magnuson and Oliver Hogg. So yeah, we were over there and we got beaten by the Moroccans by literally it ended up being by one place. So it was the most competitive in, uh, so Drew ran in the most competitive uh, individual race in uh, world schools across country history. There was 39 countries 
and it was a fantastic experience in Paris. And the race patron was Hisham El Gorouj. So he was he was the guest speaker at the opening ceremony, and it was just a it was wonderful, wonderful experience. So yeah, it's pretty special. You got to meet the legend in person, Hisham El Gorouj. Yeah, quick story with Hisham. So my, my history with the World Schools goes back to 2000. So in 1999, I had um, my brother and Nick Bromley, they came third and fourth in nationals in uh, Darwin. So they were picked because it was you had to be turning a certain age. You can't be turning 18 the next year, you had to turn 16, which we found out was incorrect. But So when we're going overseas, potentially you run against people who are turning 19. only found that out a few years later. Anyway, so they both got picked in the Australian team and we went to Morocco. So it was the first time that I'd had athletes compete for Australia. So I made the journey over there and had the most amazing time in Marrakesh. It was the weirdest place that I've ever gone in my life. I, I wasn't used to the poverty and it was Easter weekend and there were animals being slaughtered in the street and guys riding around on mopeds with two blokes with a sheep in between them. Like it was some of the weirdest stuff I've ever seen in my life. I was a bit protected at that point. But um, long story short, I bought a, a full Moroccan outfit. So I had the full dress, I had the shoes, I had the little fez, I don't know what the hat's called. I had a Moroccan drum. Somehow I got the drum back through customs, I have no idea. Anyway, obviously later that year we had the Sydney Olympics and uh, I was in the stadium of the night uh, that Garouge um, messed, messed up the 1500 when Noam Ying got there. But I actually, that night at the Olympics, I was wearing my full Moroccan outfit that I'd actually bought in Marrakesh. So, and I didn't, I didn't meet Garouge in 2000, but I knew where he was staying. And I basically, I think I was working, I was doing something and I couldn't get there. So I tipped off to my squad where he was and they all went to the, to the actual, he was staying at the Stanford at, uh, in Epping, you know, near Epping at Marsfield. And so they all went there and they all got to meet Garouge and got uh, Eldorette signed. And, like, so it was pretty cool. So my, my, obviously, you know, he's a world record holder and he's had the world record now for a long time. Probably going to get beaten very soon. But as far as I'm concerned, demigod. So, yes, it was very, very cool having him there in 2018. It's interesting you say that it might get broken soon. Because obviously you're probably referring to Jakob Ingebrigtsen, but it's still well, yeah. a second 95. But yeah, I don't know. It definitely is possible, though, for sure, in the next few years. I'm excited to see what happens there. When you watch a world record be run, you know, like with Faith this year, like when you see them be run, and like Bolt, when he was at the peak of his powers in 2009, when he, when he set both those world records in Berlin, that they win by so much. They're so much better than everyone else. I mean, you look at the four hurdles last year, like they win, they win, or 2021, they win by so much that they're that much better than everyone. Whereas I just think now... That race that that um that Ollie ran in the other night, the, the international competitiveness to have that many people running under three thirty, once again globally, I don't think we've ever seen that level of depth, and we definitely haven't seen it where that the the, uh, the Anglo-Saxon or the Europeans are actually being so competitive that there's you know four or five of them now. So whether it's him. Or, or, or one of the Africans, I just think the next 12 months, I wouldn't be so leading into Paris anyway, I wouldn't be surprised if the world record goes. So, yeah. Definitely true. Even in the 5K, recently there was a race, I forgot which one it was, but there were 13 people that broke the 13-minute barrier in one race, which is like unheard of if you look at the history of the 5K. So it's pretty cool to see, again, how far the world is going in terms of athletics. Um, people want to be cynical and say it's the shoes, but at the end of the day, like, Shoes are only making that much of a difference. So. Yeah, for sure. I agree with that. Yeah. It's the competition and the better training that everyone's doing and the more research and all that sort of stuff combined. All the one percenters are helping out. 
and obviously the shoes are a part of it, but it's not the only thing. Exactly. Um, they changed Mondo when they went to Mondo, and they made a more giving, like a, a response system, like, you know, c compared to the Rakuten or whatever else. Straight away, in that five or six year period, the Mondo came in, world records got destroyed. So, yeah. Yeah. All right, let's talk a bit about more wholesome stuff now. So I'm going to get both of you to talk about each other now. But basically, I want Jimbo to talk about what he <laughs> thinks. Can you need a moment? <laughs> I want Jimbo to talk about what he sees as a strength in Drew as a coach. And I want Drew to talk about what he thinks Jimbo's strength as a coach is. I'm wondering if it's similar or if it's different. We'll start with Drew. I reckon our, <laughs> I, I would have thought our strengths would be pretty similar, but I would say I feel Jimbo's. So I, Jimbo, I, I've now moved to Jimbo. He's now coaching me and I've been with him now for what, eight weeks, isn't it? Yeah, I think about eight weeks. But then obviously I've known him for a lot longer than that. But I, I feel, and I had felt this before he started coaching me and I still feel it now, eight weeks in, that his strongest, uh, his strongest um, uh, attribute as a coach is his ability to connect with the athlete. And you would think, well, how has he got such good ability to connect with the athlete when he never really had a background in running? But somehow he's still able to uh, form a really good personal connection with who, who he's talking to. Um, he always says, be in the moment. So maybe, maybe it's something to do with that. I feel like whenever you're talking to Jimbo about your running or what you want to do, he's really honestly listening and he's like always partaking in the conversation and thinking hard about what he can do to help you achieve what you want to do and what he can do to help you guide you on where you want to go. Not, not even just in running. It's more just in, 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 well, I was going to say in life, but in what you're doing with your career, what path you're, you're setting your life up in, um, Jimbo is always there to help 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 you uh, go in the direction you want to go in. And if it's in running, great. He'll, he'll obviously have more of an expertise in that, but then he'll, he will probably also help you with advice in what sort of career path you want to take or what uni degree you want to take or um, if you want to go overseas or... Relationships. So I, yeah, or in relationships. But <laughs> I feel that, um, going back to what I said, I feel without a doubt, and obviously as many other strengths, like Jimbo's knowledge is second to none, but and as Jimbo and I always say, you, you can know every single detail about running in the world, but unless you have this very key attribute of being able to connect with the athlete and talk to the athlete and be a personable person, um, it doesn't matter how much information you know. And, and I definitely feel that we've now gone to know, well, we already know, knew each other pretty well, but I feel like we've gone to know each other pretty well, uh, more well these, these last eight weeks. And I guess that's due to his, what I think his greatest strength is, and that's just listening and, and um, being, with, being with the athlete. I reckon yeah. that's awesome. I want to add one more thing as well. I think one extra thing that might put Jimbo apart from other people is his like teaching background as well. Cause I wouldn't say every athletics coach in the industry has done teaching in the past as well. Right. So I think that kind of adds a bit more to that arsenal that Jimbo has, which is pretty awesome. Cause 
he has the knowledge of the sport and the teaching background, and that's just insane. Yeah, 100, 100%. I reckon the teaching background, without a doubt, helps him uh, helps him coaching. Like, I've, I've found, with even with my own, own coaching, how I coach at the high school, I've found I've actually learned a lot of the way, a lot of the methods um, I coach with from some of my teachers at school, who I'm obviously still communicating with because I'm still at the school. So... I've, yeah, I, I would definitely say his teaching background just helps with the, I guess, the communication because I, I, with a coach and a teacher, they're pretty similar. It's just one, I guess, is telling you to do a session. The other one's telling you how to write an English essay. If you don't want to be in the, if you don't want to be in the English classroom, if the teacher's not entertaining and you don't want to be there, how's the student going to learn? It's the same thing if you, if you're at this, at, at the, at the track. If, if you don't want to be there and the, and the coach isn't entertaining you or keeping you engaged in the session world, how good your session really going to be? So I, I look at, at, I mean, a teacher and a coach, I, I would say they're pretty similar. I, I would just, and like once, once again, anecdotally, a lot of the better coaches around Australia do have teaching backgrounds. So, um, you know, if you, if you look at, like, I mean, Adam Diddick, you know, he's, he's, he's a chalky by background. Lindsay Watson... You know, he was, he was a TAFE teacher. And, and I'm like, like, that's just a couple just quickly off the top of my head. But even Gary Bourne, you know, he's a physics lecturer up in, in Queensland. So he understands how to captivate an audience. In, and But my, my, the most important thing I think about the education side of it, it is like what Drew said, there's a process to it. So, um, and I think because I've always been a process-oriented person, so that set, set where do we want to go with what we're doing this year or next year or, you know, in, in, within the Olympiad, and then come back to being in the present, and now we need to execute right here and now. Now, I know a lot of other coaches might operate like that, but a lot of them don't. I think some of them will either get caught up too much here in the now, and then they forget that you don't have to do everything because we're going the there. Term. Yeah, we're going there. So, like, we just got to, but yeah, so that was, that was nice of Drew to say all that. And I'd say from my perspective of Drew's coaching, we had a real good conversation years ago sitting underneath the scoreboard at Homebush at a particular event. I think that's when I first met uh, Mark. So uh, first met Nick. When you first met Nick. And um, I couldn't, like, I was so impressed with Drew's ability to actually articulate his process of coaching. So at the time, he was probably only 19, maybe 20 years of age, and he hadn't long been coaching. But because he has had a number of coaches himself and, you know, some people might think that, you know, he's goes from one to the other and, and we've laughed about that. But it's not really because he, he and Kurt are always in search of how do they get better. So how do you get better? Well, sometimes you've actually got to do things differently. You can't just keep keep doing the same. So in having a number of coaches, whether it be in triathlon or, or in athletics, I think um, Drew's strength is that he can draw upon that. So it's not just his own experience. And I think a lot of elite coaches who were elite athletes, once again, lose that. Uh, they understand the process, but it's all, it's too, um, it becomes too constricted and it becomes too much of this is how I did it. This is how my coach did it with me. So I'm going to repeat that. I'm going to repeat that because it worked. So we're just going to keep doing it. Whereas I think Drew already as a young coach has already understood that it's good to bring ideas in from everywhere and not just rely on, and, he, and as a young person, his communication skills are phenomenal and he actually commands respect. So he does train sometimes with his squad, but I, I witnessed um, before we'd actually started coaching, we'd already, our squads had already started doing some sessions together. And I just was really impressed with how authoritative he is. Like 
because as a younger person, when you're coaching people that are maybe only four years younger than you, sometimes you don't, you're not, you know, you can't just expect respect. And I think with a lot of these young guys that are year ten, year eleven, and twelve, that when when Drewy says jump, you know, they say how high. So he's if they're not scared of him, but they're very respectful of his opinions. And when he says let's get stuff done, and he actually even scared me one day when we were crossing the road at Centennial Park, he raised his voice, and I went, whoa, wow, what was that? <laughs> So, and that's it. He, he does. He's got. He commands respect, and he's got a lot of, a lot of very good attributes for a for a young coach, which is now helping his running as well. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that was definitely a little wholesome section of the podcast. <laughs> uh-huh. um, moving on more to Drew, you've done running for a long time, and you've dabbled in a lot of different distances. And yeah, your PBs are pretty solid across the board. I would say, like you're eight hundred all the way up to ten k. I think it was like 153, 346, 809, I think. And then 1414. Yeah, and then 1414 and, and the unlucky 30, 01. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, this weekend, though. So, hopefully, I can break. Hopefully, I can break 30. Yeah, that'll be awesome. But um, tell us what your favorite event is. And is that also your best event, or do you have a different best event and favorite event? Um. Yeah, I, I don't really know what my favourite event is. I don't, I don't know how, but my best PB is somehow the 1500. Um, I've never really thought of myself as a 1500 runner. Even when I was in the, um, like, even when I was in the 9, the 8, I was always looking at the, my coach at the time and me were probably always looking at the 3K and the longer stuff. I was always more of a cross-country runner in high school. Um, so I don't know, I, I, I would say my favorite event and one that I feel that I could get the most success at would be the 5k, but somehow the 1500s, my, like if, you, if you're going just off world athletics points, somehow the 1500 is my best PB. And I think the 3k is pretty, I think they're both like, I think the 1500s at like just over a thousand points. And then the 3k's are like a thousand and one point, it's something like that. So the 15 and 3k are pretty similar. Um, but I'm, I'm yet to, I reckon, nail a good 5K and, and yet to nail a 10K. Um, but, yeah, I, to, I, yeah, the 1500 is definitely my best PB. But, yeah, I, I, I feel like the 5K, as I develop a bit more and, and get a bit older, I feel like the 5K, maybe the 10K as well, but I feel like the 5K would be something that would be probably my main uh, event. But, no, good good point. But I don't really have a, I guess some people would, 22 would have an event that's their focus so I, I i don't really have a which i guess would be a bit, i don't know is that a bit strange but i would, i don't really have an event that's my focus just yet i think it's good i think it's i think it's i think that's like as you get older because we know like 800 you're going to peak between 22 and 26 and then you sort of slide out by about two years so 1500 24 28 i mean there's exceptions obviously to that but then 26 to 30 and then you know, 28 to whatever when, when you get to the longer stuff. Because if you look at the way that the Australian 10Ks come down, they've all they've all been 26, 27, 28. Um, and then they've had all that prior experience. Like you take, there's lots obviously we can talk about, but I look at Collis Birmingham because for me, he's got one of the best, he's got one of the best ranges that we've ever had. When you think that he's broken 150 for an 800 metres <clears throat> and then he's run just over an hour for half a marathon. Like, that's pretty insane. And I know Collis was a good 15 guy, never really did a lot of 15 work, but could always jump into a Sydney Track Classic and run 335. And, um, yeah, so I think with Drew, I think that's... You haven't been dragged around the race either. Like, he, he, as you know, he's very aggressive when he races in his race style. And he, uh, 
and, and, and everyone's now got to the point where they go, oh, yeah, Drew will do the work. <laughs> so one day he's going to Someone's get, him, gotta go to get in the caliber of the field where he could actually hook a ride and get a few laps where he doesn't have to do all the work. And I think that's that's in front of him. And I, I think this summer season coming off of rule, he's, he's obviously ran very well in the hour and once again sort of accidentally found himself in no man's land down there. And that's no place to uh, no place for the faint-hearted. But ran a real gutsy race down there and led Sydney Union to a team victory. Got to get that plug in. Uh, <laughs> but I think, yeah, coming off that, I think Gold Coast this week, um, and then come back to, to long course and then really sharpen up for 10K um, on the track and, and then just see, you know, come back to the 3K, which is probably my most enjoyable event of the year. And, yeah, if we can get some bodies around him, who knows? Honestly, who knows? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was wanting to ask you, Jimbo, what do you think separates, like, a sub-elite runner from an elite? Do you see any traits in particular or something to do with their training that separates them apart? It's going to sound corny, but it, it really is belief. But when you once you get there, it's not people say the one percenters and whatever else. And like I've coached plenty of people that do, you know, they take care of their bodies. They go and see the physio and, and, and they, they see chiros, make sure they keep their body in line. They eat well. Like I've, I've you know, all, all those sort of things. But it really is when you get to that point that do you actually truly believe you can do it? And so with without naming any names in the past, there's a few athletes that I've coached that just started to believe in what they could do. Um, <clears throat> and and in, the, in the male ledger, but then with the girls, like when I sat, and, and, I, and I'm happy to share this story to the broader community, when I sat down with Jenny and Millie on the 15th of January, 2015, and I said to them, oh, they've just, <clears throat> they've just released the Olympic um, athletic schedule. And they said, what's that got to do with us? And I said, well, Millie, you're going to be, isn't that, I said, isn't that exciting? You're going to be running the marathon in the morning when Jenny's running the semi-final. And, and they both looked at me like, what? And like, I said, yeah, we're, we're, all going to go, we're all going to go to Rio. It's going to be fantastic. And they're like, and Millie looks at me and goes, but Jim, I haven't even run a marathon. And I said, yeah, but that's all good. I said, that's where the goalposts are. And at that stage, I think Jenny's PB was 4.12. So over that next you know, 18 months, the two girls literally just bought in to believing I mean, Jenny was a prodigious talent when she was a kid, but she really, truly believed that she was. And I said, "You're not going to the Olympics to pick up tracksuits. We're not. You're not just going there to get to get a team tracksuit. You're going there to compete. So you're going to get out of your heat, and you're going to be in the semi-final." And I was, I, and I, I, so I believed that it was going to happen, and then they bought into it, and so, the, and that's the only difference, honestly, between athletes that are here. You've got to have talent, obviously, but the sub elite have talent. And then you don't have to work harder, you work smarter. And then when you really buy into that process, it's yeah, it's it's incredible. So and that's what I'm gonna try and do with with this with this man, because he's very good and he doesn't believe in himself, but I think that next little and there's a few a few of the people now I'm coaching at Sydney Uni who are in that same same boat. Um, and even like some of the opposite who I've worked with for eleven years, like he he's now really starting to believe that he can be one of the best, not just in the country. But can compete at, at, at the global level. So yeah, I would say that yeah, and in explaining that process, Obsha is absolutely insane. Like if there's one person you don't want to be with in the last two hundred meters, it's Obsha because his kick is mad. Like I've I've seen plenty of insane kicks by him. But yeah, I like what you said there about belief because I've been thinking about this a lot recently as well. But what well, I don't do races at like national levels and whatever yet. But in the you know, sub-elite slash recreational road running scene that I kind of compete in. 
I don't think I've ever won a race without thinking in my head that I'm going to win or at least having the belief. Because if you aren't there mentally before the race, then you've already ruined all your chances of winning a race. Whereas if you at least believe in yourself at the start of the race, you have a chance of winning that race. Even if you don't, you put yourself in the position to be able to win that race potentially. So I think the mental side of running is just as important as the physical side. So I definitely agree with you there. But yeah, it'll be cool to see Drew. I mean, I don't know Drew that well as an athlete yet, but if he doesn't believe in himself, himself as much as he should, then it'll be cool to see how far he can get with that new adopted mindset. He definitely has the talent. He works hard. And it'll be cool to see him competing at that top end of the national level and seeing how he does. Because he's only 22. So I think he has plenty of, you know, leeway in terms of age to peak in the events that he wants to peak in, which is the 5K and 10K. But I am curious, Drew, do you want to move on to like the half and the full marathon as well down the line? Oh, oh, oh probably, probably not. <laughs> um, not definitely not for a long time. Um, I, I wouldn't want to move up to the, I wouldn't even want to do a half until I feel like I've really nailed a, say a 10. Um, and then I guess with the full, I wouldn't really want to move up to a full once I feel like I've nailed a half. So I guess that's the same sort of thing with when you're doing a 5K to 10K. You probably don't want to do a 10K until you feel you can really, really do a good 5K. Um, but while I feel, and I guess this on a on a smaller scale, this is, this is a good example of, say, when you're younger, moving up distances too soon. Um, so say like a... Uh, kid in year eight right so let's say they're like what 14 around that age group kids moving up to a th the 3k maybe because it's an easier national qualifier and, and not doing any 800s or not doing any sort of cricket stuff and just going straight to 3ks or straight to the long steeplechase or to a longer distance event and sort of neglecting doing cricket stuff and then when they find themselves in year 10 11 12 or even finish school they don't really have any any change of pace or any speed because they, they moved up too soon because maybe it was the easier easier pathway to nationals but and then when they and then they find themselves at the age of let's say 21 22 in a 5k and they're just blown out the back door in the last lap because they've got no speed because they've never done it since they were like they've just never done it because they didn't do any 800s or anything so i guess that's a good example to use in my scenario, why aren't I going? Why aren't I trying a half or a full? Because I feel I've still got to develop my 8, 15, uh, 5, uh, and 10 first before I can move up. Because um, you just got to be patient. With, and that's something Jimbo's been teaching me. You just got to be patient with your moving up in distances, even though who knows, I might be better at a half than I am 5K. But might as well just take your time with it, move up when you're ready. But uh, yeah, I'm happy with that example I gave. I reckon that's pretty. Yeah, good. well, well that, no, that was good. I'll give it. I'll give a senior example. So, like with that, with that. I mean, I always think that there's no substitute for speed. So, and Andrew knows that now, and he 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 has a similar philosophy. And I know a few other coaches too. That all year round, you want to have a focus session where you do run run pretty quick. And obviously, the faster you can run over a shorter distance, potentially the faster you run over a longer distance. So, I've always sort of had that in my headspace right from the get-go. Millie, for example, when she came to me and we got rid of the steeplechase immediately, she, she'd run a couple of OK fives, but I said to her, hey, why don't we go, why don't you do Zatapak? And so she did Zatapak in 2014, and she got third, ran 33.27 for a first ever 10K. Just missed the quality by three seconds for the compliance for the B. And I thought, okay, no, you, that's definitely, we've made the right decision. We knew she'd made the right decision. 
So earlier in the season, like once we got it like into the new year, I said, why don't we set up for Gold Coast and you do the half marathon? It's flat, like it's the Oceania Championships. Um, so and all we'll have to do is probably increase training volume by about ten to fifteen percent over a period of six months. So she said, yes, wait. So she went up there and like no, she ended up winning and went one fourteen zero zero on debut. Got some cash. It was pretty exciting. It's so a straight away in my head. What Drew was saying is, I went okay, marathon. That's the marathon, and I like that's why I'd already put sort of put the seed out there, so that when she won the money, a Blacktown fun run where she she ran her last ten k in the in her first marathon in thirty six minutes. She just jogged jogged thirty two k's. She won the money, went to Amsterdam, and then she in the end of two thousand fifteen she ran ran the two twenty nine. 04 on debut, and it was literally that. So she had to do this to then do that to do that. Yeah. So we didn't, and it was always incrementally based upon her training. So once she displayed like she could do that, then it just made perfect sense that she actually moved out to distance. So some people would think that I took her out there quite quickly, but there was a real process to it. So, and then that's why by the time she went to board champs in Cardiff and she did a massive PB, she did a two minute 55 second PB and uh, 70.48 in the rain, came 13th. And then I knew if I took care of her for the rest of the year, that come Rio, she was going to be right up there in the top 20 in the world. And I didn't tell anyone, we just made sure that we did the right thing and then she ended up doing it. So, <laughs> but it was very, that was a three and a half year process that went to that. And I think with Joey, that's my mindset again is that. He's already open to do everything. And the fact that he's not frightened of cross country, and I love it when track runners are not frightened of cross country. So even this year, even though Obser was, um, didn't want to do the 10, he actually came down and did the 4K fun run. So he copped a bit of, copped a bit of heat from the squad. But the fact is nearly all, all, all of my best uh, track runners have all run cross country, including, as you know, with Jenny. You know, she was a national um, junior cross country champion. And even a few years back, between uh, the two Olympics, Olympics, she won the uh, state cross country down in the Arab. So, and she ran a national. She did. She got eighth or something at national cross country. So she was. She still wasn't afraid to leave the track and then do do the hard work in the uh, in the cross country season. So, yeah. Can you also talk about when your stint with on track was? Because I know you were the coach for that. I don't. Were you the founder as well? Or oh no, Ben Norton and I. Ben, my mate. Yeah. Got out to Benny up in Queensland. He and I a few years ago. I because my my squad. I've had uh, TRX, uh, track road cross country. Then I had TFS, train for success three six nine. Then I had uh, run three six nine. And don't even get me into the three six nine bit because that that's another podcast. Uh, <laughs> um, and then I said it's to Ben because of COVID. Yeah, because of COVID, and I kind of like I I'm not I'm not very good at social media. Like I'll be honest. Like um. I think Instagram is Instagram. Like you, if you think of it right there and then you do it. And if you don't, then the moment's gone. Hence, I've just had one of the most amazing weekends and forgot to take a single photograph. Um, but yeah, so, um, but uh, what was my point? What was I, what was I going there? Uh, oh, yeah, so I said to Ben, so I can have an identity. Um, what if we had a Sydney branch and a Queensland branch? And then with uh, Rod, Rod, um, down in Victoria, we've got a little bit of a, a, a triangular thing going now. So that what we wanted to do was that when Nationals were in Sydney, that if they he couldn't make it down here or Rod couldn't make it up, up to Sydney, that I would take responsibility for their athletes and then vice versa. <clears throat> so if I couldn't go to Brisbane or I couldn't go down to Melbourne, that we basically created the on-track. And Rod, Rod just didn't change his name. But we signed a memorandum of understanding so that we, we did it all legally and stuff like that. 
but I haven't really driven the brand. So, and that I think you see now in the modern, modern, modern distance running, it's all branding, it's all branding, it's all branding, it's all and social I'm, media. Yeah, it's all like, and I'm, I'm, I need, and then I think with the ESP now, getting some young people around me who were very savvy in that area, that I think we can actually get some real traction in, in that space. So, um, yeah, but I'll still get the odd track just as a little, as a little side. So not a side thing that that'll offend the people that are in that, but I'm going to keep that bubbling along and we'll see what it produces. Yeah, for sure. I, I didn't realize that you had that triangle system going on, which is pretty cool, actually. And before we move on to the Eastern Suburbs project, I want to quickly touch on one last thing. Because you've worked with so many athletes across different disciplines, you know, at a really high level as well. I'm just wondering if you can name some other amazing athletes that you've been able to work with obviously Jenny Blundell and Millie Clark you've already mentioned but are there any other athletes that you've worked with like who I've directly coached yeah, yeah or yeah. even just had a slight impact on them oh I mean I'm, a lot is the answer yeah well to pick <laughs> like probably probably the most the most yeah. unique relationship I've had uh very yeah. different to what I'm doing with Drew for example was my relationship with James Khan and had James Khan not uh had his he had his hip hip uh, issues and then he's end up having a hip replacement. Uh, there was no doubt that he he was he was going to go to Olympics. There was no there was no doubt that he would have been on the plane with, with Jenny, and he was one of the most methodical uh, people I've ever coached. And we became really good friends, um, you know. And but he he really taught he actually taught me having having coached Bromley, and I don't know how many people really listen to this, but coaching Nick was a unique experience as well from a slightly different perspective, but still love the experience of coaching Nicholas. Um, but with James, he really showed like me how professional a, a person could be, and he really was. So that that relationship with him was really really special. And um, unfortunately, you know, for, I don't know if you've, you've had a look through the history books, but he he, he got he, he uh, got second in 2010 when he was 19 in the 800 behind Renshaw. Then the next year, uh, we we got the goodies on on Lachlan, legend of a, of a man and runner, uh, Sydney Uni. Get that in. Um, and then 12, we messed up the Olympic prep and uh, we decided to switch to the 1500 at nationals and because we've been doing a lot of aerobic work over the winter. And he ran a, I think he split 53-1 in the 400 and just got uh, pipped by Risley. And then the next year he rolled the lot. So he, he beat Gregson and and, uh, and and the rest of uh, the rest of the crew, Josh Wright, Jeremy uh, Roth and, and a whole, whole host of other people that were in that race that day in Sydney. And then he had the... Uh, He'd actually had a bursary in 2011, which he, I'm sorry, he had a, yeah, had, had a bit of fluid and we had all that fixed up and we thought it was well, it was done. And then um, he was starting to have issues and then we x-rayed it. And unfortunately what had happened was the joint was eating itself. So the actual, he lost about 30% of the connective like tissue like in the joint or, or the actual wall around, around the hip or where the ball sits into the socket. And um, yeah, and then it just got worse and worse and worse. And, yeah, unfortunately, he had to retire from the sport very, very young. Um, and so that, for me, is pretty, a pretty unique um, experience of someone that I've directly coached. And, and we progressed. So, he, you know, he, for four years in a row, he either came second or first at nationals across two different disciplines. And so for me, I think that's probably, he's probably, that's the best. He's not the best athlete in terms of the performance, in terms of the Olympics or something like that. But, yeah. But even some of the junior kids that I've worked with in the past, and unfortunately, just due to circumstance, they never got to got to keep going. But yeah, Carnage definitely. But then I've had so many different weird influences with other people that I've never coached, and really unique relationships. And because I'm a lover of athletics, because I 
it's not my number one sport, but um, Julie and I, we want to have our own podcast to talk about that. But, uh, but um, you know, to, to be associated with, and not from a coaching perspective, but going back to people like Collis Birmingham and like Ben Harradine, Ben and I are good mates, haven't seen him for a long time because he's been based overseas. He's now a dad and all that sort of stuff, but he, he came to my wedding when he was 18. And um, there's a whole bunch of other people that I've had this prolonged uh, friendship with over all of these years. So I'm sure I've had some impact on them. They've definitely had impact on me. And um, so far, it's, you know, it's, had its, it's had its moments, but for the most part, it's, it's, it's been fantastic. Your whole life is a learning process and you can always learn more from anyone in life. So that's a pretty cool thing to hear. But yeah, moving on to the Eastern Suburbs project that you guys started. So from what I understand so far, it's to kind of create a pathway for Australian juniors that are finishing off high school and I guess have to contemplate whether they're going to the NCAA in the US or stay in Australia. And yeah, Drew's idea was kind of to create that pathway for the people that are staying in Australia and to, yeah, just keep developing them and see how far they can get. But you know, if I'm wrong, correct me and go into more detail. But Drew, can you talk a bit about your vision with ESP? Yeah, so I guess, um, so like we said before, I started talking to Jimbo about creating a Eastern Suburbs based group probably, what would you say, like six months ago. And because just in the Eastern Suburbs right now, we both sort of felt there's not, there's options, but there's probably not, there's not options that suit everyone. And there's, there's not a group in the Eastern Suburbs like that I feel that would have, that was working for me as well. So we, and, and we discussed this idea of creating a new group uh, based in the area. Cause I'm obviously from these suburbs, but Jimbo is from uh, like Parramatta and, and he's a, he's a Westie. So, <laughs> um, and I needed to get over the bridge and communicate with the, with the Westie. Um, <laughs> But uh, the idea was to create create a group in these suburbs, and and we would work together with because sessions that Jimbo can't get to because he's um, obviously it's a it's a they're two different worlds, uh, Parramatta and these suburbs. So sessions that he couldn't get to, I, I I'd sort of take the reins, and um, so far it's working pretty well. Eight weeks in, it's working pretty well. We're sort of doing it uh, doing it together, and um, yeah, I've, I've been happy with how it's going. How do you how would you summarise it? Yeah, well, and I think that definitely, like, for, like... Uh, yeah, on, the, on the creating a pathway, yeah. sort of, that was another, I, sorry, yeah. with that, no, right. um, people leaving, I feel there's not really any options for people leaving school right now. They, they're the only option, pretty much, if they if you live in Sydney, the only, if you really want to kick on with your running, the only option is pretty much go to college. There's not really any sub-elite or elite group in these suburbs right now that can sort of take you to that next level. So the idea was to... Like why that's not really good enough. Like why is there not a single group in, in the like in in the area that that we feel could that can do that? So that that was the that was another sort of basis of the idea to create that environment or the, or space where um, you don't have to go to college. Like for example, I didn't go to college. Some people don't want to go to America or like some people would rather just stay home. So it was the uh, to create that as well. But yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, that's off that. Like I think that's the thing now that a lot of kids. They're, they're being swooned by going to America. And so for me coming into this role, uh, I didn't primarily, I, I sort of said to the team here at the university and to the committee that I didn't take this role as a coaching role. I saw this more as an administrative thing and being the conduit uh, between 
Sydney University Sport and Fitness and Sydney University Athletics Club. And so primarily that's what I've done for the first the first year in the role. But then I've been meeting a lot of the athletes in the EAP and then having the winter last year and realising that there was a little bit of a gap. Uh, Dean Gleeson, my predecessor, he's he offers, uh, he still is offering training in the eastern suburbs, but it, it's not, I wouldn't even say sub elite, maybe one or two people, but more social and or it's become that way. Um, and, and so, yeah, when we started talking about it, I thought, well, it's going to help Drew's uh, athletes that don't decide to go to the States. And it's going to give people at Sydney Uni another option in regards to coaching. So the two have sort of have crossed over at the perfect time. So the people like um, <coughs> Lachlan Townsend, who was being coached by Bradley Woods, but literally just training by himself, he's now come in and he's got bodies around him at training and it's a completely different experience. So, and then people like Adam Schaefer, uh, you know, who's, who's studying studying law and, and all that sort of stuff. Schaefer's uh, not sub-elite at this, at this moment, but he doesn't know how good he could be. And he was literally just being self-coached. And already he's, he's realised that with, stru- with structure, with a bit more structure and with bodies around him, like he's 23, 24, um, and he's loving his running more than he ever has uh, in his life. And then to have, obviously, Drew's um, guys, like, you know, just like York and, and, and um, Sebastian, who's also part of Sydney University, like there's this real synergy. Um, York's still with RBH, and he's at, um, he's at UTS. Yeah. yeah. So, but we've got this group now that's like realising that we've got an option. So, and, and that's the message that I guess the podcast gives us the potential to do that today. But also the message that I'm giving at Sydney University is that America is not the only choice. And that as you, I don't know if you're aware, but we've got um, 43 athletes currently on EAP scholarship. And, and, and there's a lot of money involved in that. So it's not a full ride, sort of free ride like you can get in America. But the reality is you've got an institution that's obviously been here for a very long time and an athletics club that's existed since 1878. So that if I, as the director, can then also offer another option in regards to uh, distance running, I would have been a fool if I didn't take advantage of that. So, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely awesome to hear. Yeah, I know York and Sebastian and Lachlan Townsend personally as well, and it'll be good to see how far they can go with the new group as well. Because I know as well, because I'm pretty good friends with Lockie Townsend. He has done a lot of training solo and I've always wondered how he can keep the motivation up and just, you know, keep training like that. But it's good to know that he's with a group now. Yeah, and I've said, but I've said to Bradley, because I've known Bradley for a long time. I watched Bradley when he was at the peak of his powers, you know, uh, 337, 1500 meter guy. And, um, you know, he, Brad's, you know, he's doing great things now up in, up in the, uh, Hunter area, and um, and I, I, when we spoke at the hour last week, I just said, I just said to him, "Well, we're performing now." Um, I just said, "Look, I still want you to have an an, an input and, and an impact on Lockman's running. I don't, I don't want ESP just being something that's in a bubble, that's in isolation. I still want that communication and the appreciation and respect shown to previous coaches. So I think that's another important thing. Of and, and I think what Drew's realised with me is that I'm very global in what how I think and what I do. It's not. You know, I, I, I have a bit of an ego, but not really. Like, kind of leave that at the door because what I do is all about them. It's not, it's not, it's got nothing to do with me. And hence, accolades, if you get awards here or there, which I've not got many of, um, it's just that satisfaction of watching people improve. And if I say too many names and people will feel like they've been left out, so he's got to mention Lucy Alder. So Lucy was doing some training with Dino and she was a little bit lost. And, uh, and so, 
Um, real quick, good story with Luce is that uh, when she ran her first three card at Bankstown at Trelaw last year, she was standing with me at the finish line and I said, what are you doing? And she said, what do you mean? What am I doing? I'm about to run the 3K. And I said, yeah, well, the start's over there. It's at the 200 metres. And she goes, oh, bugger. So she sprints across. I said, no, 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 just walk, you goose. Don't use up, like, all your ATP. Just walk over there, you silly thing. So, um, and then the next uh, 3K she did, she improved by over 20 seconds. She's got 25-second improvement. And then it just seemed silly that she didn't start doing some work with me. So, she actually, I started coaching her probably in about January, February and just started coaching her by correspondence so that when we got the ESP thing up, boom. So she's coming to that. Uh, unfortunately, she's fortunate for her, but unfortunate for us. She's going away um, to study in England for the rest of the year. But in saying that, what it does is it, give, it gives us that um, feminine-like perspective as well. So Drew hasn't coached a lot of girls. And then my Aspen Lambert, um, she's sort of coming across as well. So, which has been great. So Aspen can jump in and then there's a couple of other Sydney Uni girls who have come come uh, come to one or two sessions and there's a few others that are contemplating. Purely because with study, as, as you'd appreciate, um, a lot of the Sydney Uni students here are highly intelligent and, and their workloads um, in terms of study are incredible, when, particularly when they're in semester. So, yeah, just having that option and, and having that. And, and I think too for Drew, like it's it's been quite enjoyable to have that female, a bit of, bit of female balance. There's not... not there's no parity at this moment, but, um, but you know, that's something that we can definitely, as co-whatever we are, creators, um, <laughs> we, can, we can work towards a little bit more parity within the, within the squad. I'm, I'm glad I got, well, we got to hear a ton of wisdom today from, you know, all parts of life. I guess one last thing I wanted to touch on before we finish, or there's a couple more, I guess, is I want to get your thoughts on double threshold training just because you have a lot of knowledge in... Uh-huh the training field and yeah is it for everyone is it for some people what are your general thoughts on it uh it's the fat, it's the fat but, at the moment yeah <laughs> i know i know it's well i i only really been made aware of it um through drew through this interview i'm not really I'm, I'm i'm always focused on creating my own stuff but and i think from a creative perspective like um i mean look it just looks like a little bit of volume well, just a bit i don't know and obviously like to speak on it specifically, I don't probably know enough about it, anecdotally or otherwise. Uh, I don't really know anyone that's doing it in Australia, unless Drew does. Like, I don't, I don't know anyone that switched to it. I don't, I'm sure it's got its reasons and its scientific basis. I mean, my, my concern is when you're doing, if you're doing, you know, uh, 10k plus a 10k, you know, tempo a bit faster, and then you're doing, you know, 25 400s in the afternoon. I'm like, far out. Where, where's the, it's the recovery? A, and it's okay if you're a professional athlete, I guess, because he's probably. In the person that we know who's doing it, he's famous for it. He's probably got all the doctors around him, so that he's and the right staff around him, so that he he might be training quite early in the morning, um, and then and then he's got that recovery process. He might be in a tank, he might be you know flotation or whatever else, and then he's seeing the physio or whatever he does on a daily basis, so that his body can then do what he's doing uh, in the afternoon. I want to know exactly what is he doing the next day, and then I want to know from a recovery standpoint where's the adaptation you've got. So he's obviously stressing the body, but where's he recovering the body so the body can adapt? And then, and, and so I don't, I don't know enough about it, but I'm definitely going to be looking into it. Because <laughs> I, I think there's some days, like particularly someone like Drew, Drew can definitely handle that. Maybe not that exact volume, like that, that day there where he's doing 30Ks or 40Ks, whatever he's doing. Like that's a lot of running for, for a middle distance goal from 15-5. You know, but I definitely think like someone like a Drew could probably handle a 6 and 6 and, and maybe 10-400s uh, in the other. Not twenty five, you know what I mean. So, but it, it's it, it, each each one to themselves, and I, I think the good thing about it is that it gets people talking and thinking, and 
you know, um, the model of, you know, uh, training distance running hasn't changed very much since the 60s. You know, and people like Lydia who, you know, along with um, along with uh, Bowman and, and, and those guys, when they started playing around with, you know, the 100 mile or whatever and, and coming up with a formula or some magic way of doing it, which seems still up until recently to be copied. But I still feel like a lot of people are still trying to do that 100 mile thing. Um, obviously, if you're marathon, you're probably doing a little bit more. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's about training smarter, not harder. So if, if, if you can, it does work for the particular athlete, then I guess, yeah. But I, like all, all fads and trends, I think with this young kid that we've got at the moment, it's unbelievably talented, talented young boy. I know that he's not, I don't think he's talking about right. Careful, Alex. Is he? No, I don't yeah. think he's, I'm, not, I'm not aware that Dick Telford's, I don't think Dick's prescribing that, in, in my opinion. There's a few other people, but um, Dick's probably the best distance coach in Australian history. So um, that's just my opinion. But, um, uh, and I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't believe he's prescribing to it. So, yeah. Drew, your thoughts? <laughs> oh, um, oh, just, uh, I guess add on to what Jimbo said. Yeah, I guess if if you feel it works for your for for yourself, then maybe it's something to give it a try. But I mean, with, with training, it's it's there's no one size fits all. It's 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 for the individual. So double session days might work for one person in, in a group and then the other person in the group might just pull up sore every every day that every after every session. So like yeah, it's just for some people might be a good idea, but for for others it might not work. So you just it's not like with what Jimbo said with the hundred mile week thing as well. Like that was a bit of a fad at the time as well and everyone was trying it. But how can how can one how can that distance work for every single run? Like it's just yeah. you have to find what works for you. So if you feel like the doubles double session days works for you, then maybe yeah, give it a go. But if you don't if if you try it for a couple day uh, for a couple of weeks and you're not really feeling uh, you're feeling just worn out and you're not really feeling recovered enough, then maybe maybe it's not for you and maybe go back to a more traditional approach of if you want to run twice in a day, maybe do a recovery run as the other activity for the day, um, which is what which is what I do when I do uh, sessions on a Tuesday and Saturday. I'll just do an easy run um, for the other activity for the day. But, yeah, I mean, with you, but that's that's not just with double threshold training. That's with all training. Like it's what works for one person isn't going to work for the other person. So, um, for example, on Saturday I prescribed eight different training sessions. Yeah, so that <laughs> yeah, need, wow. yeah, that's that. Yeah, so you need you need you need you need to find, and that comes back to creating that coach athlete relationship. You, as a coach, you need to know what works for your athlete. If you don't know that, then how how on earth are you going to be able to prescribe them something that suits them? Yeah. Um. So I guess what you say, I was going to say it's up to the coach to understand that, but it's also up to the athlete to provide feedback to the coach of how they're feeling, how they're pulling up after sessions. So if you're someone say like yourself who I know who doesn't who sort of go who doesn't really have a direct coach, then maybe reaching out to to you know, the, the networks that you know, reaching out to people that you know, and trusting that how your body feeling determines what you should be doing. Like listening to your body, not just doing, um, not just saying okay, I'm doing this because that's what old mate does in America or in Europe or. No, I'm, I'm doing this because that's how my body feels and that's how, that's what works for me. So I guess what I'm saying is, yeah, just, just listen to, listen to how you feel, not just because it's on a word document. Yeah. 
Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I think running training in a nutshell is just like, yeah, you want to kind of try and get your long run in, get a bit of tempo and get a bit of speed in and do easy runs in between. But most importantly, to just listen to your body. And if you make slight incremental changes, really pay attention to how your body is feeling the day after and stuff like that to, yeah, stay on track. Because I think even though I'm pretty experimental with different types of training, because I don't have a coach, I am always aware of how my body's feeling. So I think I learn every time I try this new training method. And I feel like I see myself as a little experiment subject, which is pretty cool. Just because I don't yeah, have a coach. Well, you, you, yeah. use your, you use your... Uh your platform that you have on on social media and on youtube and i'm sure that a lot of your viewers would because you you would you say i'm like because you use a fair few different like training philosophies don't you so i guess your 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 viewers would probably see how you're going with it and see how you're reacting to it so you know you're right you're, you're probably a good if, if someone <laughs> was to try to have a look at how different uh like programs work seeing how you're doing with them is that you're right you're a good you're a good um experiments how they go yeah and going back to a little bit of what jimbo was talking about how it's good to have good connections with everyone because you can learn from everyone and i've actually messaged drew quite a few times regarding my training and where i should take it and i've also messaged people like ed goddard and a few other people to get feedback on what they think of what i'm doing and stuff which is always quite useful so i think yeah that's why i try and maintain my network across the australian runners at least to try and learn from every single one because i've learned quite a bit from drew actually and now i've learned a lot from jimbo too which is pretty cool so uh-huh. um yeah i might even message him and ask him more stuff after this podcast too but yeah well i, I think too because yeah. that that's uh, one, one of the most important things is that it, like one of my mottos of life is you know to try to try you're never gonna you're never gonna make everyone happy right but yeah. you try try and get on with most people most of the time you do you know, and the thing is, even though if anyone that watches this and that knows me and the people that don't, that's great. Um, you can judge me by my beard and the hat on backwards and like everyone else has. But the reality is I've learned so much from so many people that I don't ever want that to stop. So, and as I say, I'm just a primary school teacher who just not, happens to know a lot of people with PhDs. So, and, and my other motto of life is that I'll, you know, by the time I'm, I'm not, no longer here and shuffle off this mortal coil or whatever they say that I really want to know a little bit about everything. So, and then the things that really interest me that I learn a lot more about. And I think all of us as, as athletes, as coaches, you know, whatever role you're playing in other people's lives, that I think if we, we're always, you know, endeavouring to learn a little bit every day, then it's only going to make, you know, people better athletes and also better human beings. Yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah, there's no point creating unnecessary enemies, basically, because you can always get a bit of good from everyone. So, yeah, I think that's kind of a good topic to end on. But one last little thing, talk about your other hobbies outside of running, because I know you have a whole personality outside of running as well, from what I hear from Drew. Um, Myself. (laughs) Like, yeah, cooking and everything, right? (laughs) Uh, yeah. Quick story. Uh, Millie and I got invited to be on MKR a couple of years ago. We couldn't do it because she, unfortunately, fortunately, was chair to run world champs in London. Um, and the, when we when we uh, did the online thing, that the two of the questions, the part of the reason why we were the third people asked to do it, the producer Rebecca rang me and and I said, oh, why did you pick me? And she said, oh, well, you wrote, your answers were very different to everybody else. She said the idea of being on live television scares the shit out of you. 
and it scares the shit out of me. And the other thing is, I don't need to win two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So I said, I don't need the money, and being on television just scares the buggery out of me. So she thought that'd be really funny, and the, the, to have an Olympic athlete and, and, and their coach was was pretty unique. But yes, yeah, so I at one point nearly had a I was like Instagramming food every second thing that I did. You're a bit of a foodie. Love my food. Learned how to cook when I was 19. Watched my mum a little bit and then moved away from home and then yeah, got Margaret Ford's cookbook and uh, started cooking things like beef bourguignon when I first started cooking. And then I've explored all the foods of the world. And I actually like cooking more than I like eating, even though I'm a big guy. That's more to do with <laughs> pinot noir and other things that are in liquid form. But um, yeah, so my, my passion for cooking, I have a lot of knives. I pretty much have a, almost every piece of cooking equipment you can imagine. Um, you just, I just started working with my cousin. Yeah, I just love. I just love the. I love cutting things up. Like I, I, I liken cooking to coaching, like because there's all the ingredients that go into making a really good athlete. And when I cook a dish, like I like to, and you know, and the pe- some people that know me pretty closely know that I, I used to be completely obsessed with food. Like it was just ridiculous. I'm like at one point I had six or seven different oils. Um, I had a bit of an edible garden going. Had about sixteen plants going. When I started doing bonsai, so I went to bonsai school for twelve months, and then. So I've still got about forty or fifty plants, which I, which um, I'm still taking care of, and then very passionate. Like I'm, I've had dogs, but when I, when my current dog Nitro, who's a whippet, um, he's probably the best trained dog in Sydney because I went and studied all the seasonal art stuff. So when I do something, I, despite what I look like and how people think of me, um, yeah, when I, I became obsessed with sake for a little bit. So I went and researched and found out as much as I could in regards to the influence that it had on the Japanese economy and the whole process of polishing rice and the purity of water and all the bits and pieces. So that when I when I started doing something, I literally, I get teased for it a bit. My family thinks that I'm a lunatic, so sometimes I am. But yeah, so when I, of all my hobbies, and I taught myself how to play the guitar when I was 32, I learned 75 chords in three months, um, started writing songs that were terrible, so I obviously never recorded or released. Um, so I love a bit of singing as well, and I just, yeah, I just think life, there's so many things that we can, that we can explore within ourselves. And I, I, I don't ever, I've tried never to be one dimensional um, in what I do. And even as a coach, the fact that I can coach pretty much all event groups and still enjoy watching all the events in athletics. I think if you can stay as diverse and as open to as many things as you can, it just makes this whole journey a bit more fun. So, yeah. Yeah, I absolutely agree again with everything. That's so awesome to hear. And yeah, Thanks, like, like I heard from, sorry? Trying to come up with, I haven't done a new thing. I started learning the bass two years ago and I wasn't very good at that. So, And I'm hopeless at language. So if there's any teachers out there that want to be good at teaching language, I'm shocking. I've got no idea. So, what is the language you'd want to learn? Uh, I'd love to, I can obviously speak a little bit of French, but um, I think I'd love to, like Italian's just very romantic and, and kind of sexy. And, and I, I reckon Japanese would be pretty cool. Be pretty yeah, it's good to hear. I, I would teach you Japanese, but actually I'm not that good either just because I've always been speaking English, so well, that would be tough for me. amazing country. Like, I'm, I'm kind of mildly <laughs> obsessed. I've got a mild obsession with Japan. But Bonsai actually did start in China. So just okay. so want to know the history of uh, right. It did actually start in China, so, yeah. I didn't know that. I thought it was Japanese. Yagi's held responsible for that, but no, it actually <laughs> did, did, like, a lot of things started actually in China. Yeah. So there you go. All right. Well, thanks a lot for all the wisdom you've shared, both of you, in this podcast episode. I think it was awesome that we got uh, Jimbo on last minute because originally this was meant to be Drew and I, but it ended up being three people that love having a yarn and we've now 
had the longest podcast episode ever on my podcast. Today, <laughs> so, um, yeah. I what think about, this will be good. Do you know about Drew's obsession with corduroy hats? <laughs> I know. That's one of his little, not a hobby per se, but he's a bit of a collector. No, I warned you that the podcast would be pretty long. But <laughs> a lot of the time, Jim and I are talking. It's rarely about. It's rarely about our like my training. It's more just about. It's more just about complete nonsense. We talk about what rugby league a lot, but. Yeah, like we we think that the two of us could actually do a better job than Brad Fitler. <laughs> so and New South Wales boys, yeah, yeah. We, um, we would dearly love the opportunity. New South Wales rugby league. But uh, no, yeah, we 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 spend a fair, we talk we talk about a fair bit of nonsense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let me know if you ever make your podcast with you two because. I mean, I can try and help plug it if I can. Yeah, I'm wait, well, I'm waiting for my son to finish his HSC because Jackson's very. Um, he, he's taking a lot of photos for Athletic New South Wales, and he's um, he's just come off playing uh, trunch ball in uh, his high school's um, version of Matilda, and he's he was a featured artist at School Spectacular last year, and it looks like he's going to get a, a solo performance at this year's School Spec. So he's very busy doing doing his school and doing all this extracurricular stuff. And massive, massive sports nut. Like, seriously, massive. He knows every player in the rugby league. knows every player in the NBA. And eventually, one day, wants to become... Um, he'd love to be... Uh, he'd love to announce, like, in um, rugby league. He'd love to be a sportscaster. So, um, yeah, you have, like... And so, when he's a bit more freed up, we're going to sit around and just talk rubbish. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah for the five people that might listen. Yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> I know. Jackson's got over a 1,000. Uh, a thousand um, lot like people following his vlog, and like he's, he's been vlogging since he was ten, so he's now eighteen, so he's he's into that. So you'll have to meet, you'll have to meet him next time we're at athletics if he's there. I'll I'll, uh, I'll introduce you to him. He's a good kid. Right. You're alumni. I am. Yeah. Oh, dude, we're gonna, I'm just going to be plugging the rubbish out of this. <laughs> I'll actually have to go. On, I'll have to get Jackson to show me how to go on all the social media. Put it on the social. I'll put it on the platform. Just get on it. Get around it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, thank you both for coming on and your time. Um, I'll let you know when the podcast is up. But yeah, we'll give Eastern Suburbs Project a little plug as well. <laughs> thank you. Right, Thanks, buddy. Thank you.